Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia, or WM for short. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the IWMF Foundation, and we are so grateful to have this collaboration with them. We've been doing this for a number of years now, and um, it, it's been a wonderful collaboration that we've had. We've been able to develop programs in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do ourselves. So working together really makes a difference and makes a difference for all of you as well. Now, um, we have had an enormous response to this program today. I want to say that we have over 1,300 people on the call today. That's a lot of people on the call, and uh, there probably are more than that just because I know some of you are still dialing in and registering and all that kind of stuff, or just dialing in, just get into the calls that we recommend, of course. Um, and we have people from 29 different countries on this call, Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, England, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Hong Kong, India, Israel, Italy, Ireland, Macau, Mexico, New Zealand, Netherlands, Norway, Panama, Portugal, Sweden, South Africa, Spain, Turkey, UK, and Uruguay. So really from all over the world. This is an amazing call, global call really to some extent. It's absolutely. Um, today's program is supported by Pharmaceuticals Inc. and Janssen Biotech Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of this amazing program. Now we have the best speakers in the world on this program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stephen Ensel. Dr. Ensel is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, Consultant, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, Mayo Clinic. Dr. Ensel is going to present an overview of Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, including newly diagnosed and long-term survivors, symptoms and signs, frontline treatment of Waldenstrom's, standard of care, new treatment approaches, and clinical trials, and key questions to ask your healthcare team, including treatment follow-up care for newly diagnosed, relapsed, refractory, and long-term WM survivors. It's really my distinct pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ansel. Thank you very much. It's uh, really great to be on, and thank you for all of those that have joined us. So uh, as you heard, we're going to be talking today about Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, and I just wanted to start off by talking about exactly what that is. So I think it's important to recognize that normal biology, if you were to breathe in a virus or an infection of some kind, the way in which your body responds to that is by having B lymphocytes, which are part of your body's defenses, change to plasma cells and make antibodies as protection. And the first kind of antibody the uh, cells would make is an IgM antibody. The reason that's relevant is that when you get Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, your problem is within that process. So as the cells have changed from lymphocytes to plasma cells, they have made genetic errors. And that then becomes a clonal process, which becomes the, uh, the cancer kind of problem, which is called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. So this is a disease of B lymphocytes on their way to plasma cells. 
So when one actually diagnoses this disease, the important thing is to look for lymphoplasmocytic cells, a lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma that's typically in the bone marrow but can also be in lymph nodes and in the spleen. These are the cancer cells that have now got stuck in that process toward, making, uh, toward becoming plasma cells and making uh, IgM protein. So the cancer is really a problem of two things, the first being this lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma present in the bone marrow, but also a protein, this IgM protein that's circulating around in the blood. And typically patients will have symptoms related to both of those. Additionally, I mentioned earlier about uh, genetic mutations, and Dr. Castillo will talk more about this later, but as a defining entity, many people will have a mutation in a gene called MYD88, and this mutation is seen in 95% or more of patients with Waldenstrom's. What is interesting about the disease is that there is a spectrum of how this presents. Some people are picked up almost incidentally just on a routine testing, which can detect this IgM protein that can be present in the blood. Other people can have much more in the way of symptoms, anemia problems as the bone marrow fills up with lots of these extra lymphoplasmocytic cells. If the protein becomes a substantial problem and there's lots of it circulating around in the blood, people can develop hyperviscosity problems and other symptoms related to the protein sticking to things. Many times what it can stick to are other red cells causing anemia problems or stick to nerves causing neuropathy, and you'll hear more about this uh, later on in the program. So when patients are diagnosed with lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma and the IgM protein in the blood, as well along with this MYD88 mutation, that really defines Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. As you heard me say earlier, people can have many differing sets of symptoms. Some people presenting with virtually no symptoms and others who can be very sick with difficulty with vision, difficulty with thinking, difficulty with anemia, all of it due to very high levels of the protein and very extensive infiltration of the, of the uh, lymphoplasmocytic process in the bone marrow. So what's very important right in the beginning is to make a definitive diagnosis by doing a bone marrow test and checking the blood, and then additionally doing some of those genetic analyses. Once the diagnosis is made, the key next question is, does the patient need treatment? And sometimes the patient can just be observed because the protein is at a very low level or the involvement of the bone marrow or lymph nodes is minimal and in those cases, patients may actually take years to develop any kind of significant symptom. In contrast, other patients can be quite ill at the time they are diagnosed, and then it's very important to determine how high the protein levels might be and how thick or viscous it's making the blood. Some patients, even before they start treatment or chemo chemotherapy or pill-type treatments, they need to have the viscosity of their blood decreased. And so many folks might even be considered for what's called plasmapheresis, which is a way to kind of wash the blood, as it were, to bring the very high levels of protein down substantially lower to avoid this thickening of the blood, which causes many of the symptoms. With all of that said, the diagnosis now being made and the potential for frontline treatment being considered, the key question is, number one, does the patient need treatment or can the patient be observed? So we like to try and define reasons to initiate treatment. So simply just having 
the presence of the lymphoplasmacytic cells and the protein doesn't automatically mean that everybody needs treatment. Treatments are very successful and very likely to substantially benefit patients. But the challenge is just sometimes treatments can also have side effects, so we want to weigh up the benefit versus the risk. So in patients where benefit would clearly help the patient feel better, those would be the people in whom treatment would be initiated. So things that tip your doctor off to start treatment would be symptoms such as a significant uh, decrease in blood counts because of bone marrow being filled up by lymphoplasmacytic cells, substantially enlarging lymph nodes or substantially enlarging spleen because of these extra cells that are accumulating, symptoms of hyperviscosity, that's the blood getting significantly thick, which again would need treatment, or any evidence that there's actually a more aggressive course of the disease, a transformation, which would then require people to actually need treatment uh, a lot sooner. So the question then comes, well, what treatment do you need when it's time to treat? So the first uh, thing to say is that all therapies that we use currently as frontline treatment are typically very effective in improving patients' outcome. So the treatment that we typically use uh, would result in a response rate that's in 90-plus percent of patients, and many of these responses can be very durable, and by that I mean years. I think there's some discussion about what kind of treatment is the best choice. Sometimes folks would favor the use of a chemotherapy-type treatment with an antibody treatment, something like bendamustine plus rituximab treatment. Or others would consider treatment with a uh, pill-based treatment, uh, such as a, a BTK inhibitor called abrutinib. The treatments work in different ways. Bendamustine plus rituximab really directly uh, kills rapidly growing cells and thereby beats down all of those cells in the bone marrow. They then shut off the protein, and when they do that, the patient can be in remission for an extended period of time. The advantage of that treatment is it's a short course of treatment and then no treatment for a more extended period. The downside is it's more intense treatment, has a greater effect on blood counts, and is a little harder to take. There's been a lot of excitement around abrutinib. This basically works against the signaling that's inside the cells, and when it does that, patient's uh, cells shut down, stop making the protein, and die off and subsequently stop, uh, as I say, having any of the symptoms associated with the disease. Again, a very effective therapy. The uh, advantage is that this is a pill that one takes every day. Uh, the challenge is that it's a pill that you had to take every day and that you need to remain on the treatment for an extended period of time. There really, to date, has not been a head-to-head -head comparison between the two, but I think it's safe to say both are effective therapies and aside from those, there are other effective therapies that we would then consider in second or subsequent lines of treatment. I think, uh, again, as one considers what is the optimal treatment to uh, receive when you have a new diagnosis of Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, as I mentioned earlier, the first thing is to confirm the diagnosis. The second uh, major decision point is, does the patient need treatment? The third uh, important piece is, is the viscosity at such a level that one is very concerned and would actually need to consider the plasmapheresis right away. And the reason that we would uh, at least assess that is sometimes as cells die, they release more in the way of that uh, uh, IgM protein, 
when they do that, there is a risk that, it, especially if you receive an antibody treatment, that the level of IgM could increase more than what it is at baseline. And if you're already having a lot of symptoms, that could put you at substantial risk. So it is important to decrease that protein level if you start the treatment. <clears throat> and then finally, when you actually start treatment, which treatment? And I think this is an individualized discussion that needs to happen between you and your physician. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think at this time, uh, the uh, standard of care uh, is the consideration of either a chemotherapy rituxan-based treatment or the abrutinib therapy. But I think the exciting thing is that there are many other new and novel treatments, and we're going to have an opportunity, I'm sure, to talk more about them uh, when Dr. Castillo talks about the, the relapsed and refractory patients. But new agents that are targeting other pathways, particularly targeting some of the death pathways uh, in cells and uh, to other new BTK inhibitors, these are all becoming standard therapies that are now becoming very promising and head-to-head -head comparisons with the two treatments I just mentioned uh, are under underway, and we hope to have those results soon. I always encourage patients, uh, we're always, because this is a relatively uncommon disease, we want to move the field forward. We want to come up with the best therapy for patients, and we'd like to know what the best therapy is for everybody. One of the ways in which a patient can help is to participate in clinical trials, and the reason is clinical trials are always taking what is currently felt to be the best and comparing it to what is a potential future best to see whether the comparison can allow us to move forward with a new therapy that's better than the old. So whether it be for first-line treatment or if you've already had treatment and need subsequent treatment, I encourage patients to consider clinical trials because I think you help move the field forward, but also you're getting the latest and greatest as far as treatment is concerned. I think finally, just in the last minute or two that I have, just to say that if one is a newly diagnosed patient or a patient that already has had Waldenstrom's for a while, what are some of the key questions that you might uh, ask your healthcare team? I think when you're newly diagnosed, uh, really important to discuss with your doctor uh, how convinced they are of the diagnosis. The reason for that is that there are other kinds of lymphoma that can be quite similar, something like marginal zone lymphoma, and that's where some of those genetic tests that we mentioned can be really critical. There is an additional genetic test that you're going to hear about a little uh, later in the program, a, a CXCR4 mutation. And the reason this is important is that this can also affect your response, particularly to the treatment of brutinib that I mentioned before. So one of the questions to ask your healthcare team is, uh, have you or can you please do the genetic testing? Because I think that can inform uh, some of the treatment uh, decisions. I think a further uh, discussion point is to discuss your symptoms in detail with uh, your doctor. Many times patients can have a lot of symptoms, some of which can be associated with the protein and the disease, and some of which can be associated really with other things. So one of the important things your doctor needs to do is to dissect apart which are the symptoms related to Waldenstrom's and which are the symptoms related to something else. The reason is you don't want to initiate treatment for symptoms unrelated to Waldenstrom's because clearly that would not benefit those symptoms. So sometimes nonspecific symptoms like fatigue, for example, 
people may start treatment for that, and it may be unrelated and actually may uh, cause uh, more harm than good. But I think when all is said and done, a clear-cut diagnosis, uh, additional uh, genomic and genetic testing to get some clarity on the diagnosis and some of the potential risks uh, for how response to treatment may go are important questions to ask. I think a further thing that's important to ask is just to have your doctor be a a partner in treatment because we are excited about the fact that this has this disease has a very long and favorable prognosis and so we would like to be able to see doctors and patients kind of navigate the treatment course over an extended period of time so i think again important that your care team participates in your care over a substantial period of time so with that i'm going to end and uh, thank you for an opportunity to give an overview and uh, turn it back to our moderator Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Ansel. That was outstanding, really wonderful, um, really introduction to the whole call and setting the stage for it and lots of incredible information, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Jorge Castillo. Dr. Castillo is um, Clinical Director, Bing Center for Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Castillo is going to present treatment for relapsed refractory WM, translating genomic findings into new treatment of opportunities for WM, managing symptoms and side effects, including controlling complications and quality of life, peripheral neuropathy, and mapping the future of WM, including long-term survivors. It's really now my distinct pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Castillo. Thank you very much, Carolyn, for the nice and kind introduction, and thank you to Steve for providing such a nice uh, overview of um, the, the treatment of patients with Waldenstrom's who have been newly diagnosed. So today I have the, the easy fit of uh, talking about these five uh, topics uh, in, in, in the next uh, 13 minutes or so. So I think uh, I'm going to echo a number of the different aspects that Dr. Um, uh, Ansel mentioned in terms of the treatment of patients with relapsed refractory Waldenstrom's has to be personalized. Uh, Everybody is different. Every patient is different. The clinical features uh, of these patients, the genomic profile of these patients, um, as well as their comorbidities and medications, they're all different. So we need to have all those factors into account when we have to choose um, the best treatment um, following the initial treatment for patients with Waldenstrom's. So as um, Dr. Ansel mentioned, um, we do have a number of options um, that can be given to patients, and one of them is the chemoimmunotherapy options in which uh, benamustine or cyclophosphamide can be combined with rituximab. We also have a family of medications called protosome inhibitors, um, and there are uh, actually three in the market at this time. Um, Bortezomib is the one that has the longest experience with. Um, we do have carfilzomib and more recently, an, an oral protosome inhibitor uh, called ixazomib. Um, and then we also have uh, the BTK inhibitors, specifically ibrutinib, which can be given alone or in combination with rituximab. So I think uh, as we kind of define what might be the best option on the first line of treatment, if let's say we go for bendamustine on the first line of treatment, then we do have protosome inhibitors as well as BTK inhibitors as good options for relapse and refractory disease. And um, in my mind, um, those are probably the first three lines of treatment that I would potentially use in patients um, in the standard uh, treatment approaches. 
So we could potentially do chemoimmunotherapy first, and then ibrutinib later, and then protosome inhibitors afterwards, or ibrutinib first, and then protosome inhibitors later, and chemoimmunotherapy afterwards. So the kind of the the the, the sequencing of these regimens uh, is obviously a little less understood. But we, at least in our experience, we have seen that patients who respond very well to initial therapies and they, they lose their response, um, then they do respond to the next line of treatments. And I think that sequencing needs to be better understood. But those are definitely three big options uh, that are safe and effective and provide patients um, with, a, with a good quality of life and a good response uh, moving forward for, for years as well. So, I mean, besides those agents, we do have another plethora of agents that um, we tend to use as well. Having said all that, um, I think um, those uh, other agents might uh, provide a, a little bit different uh, benefit versus uh, complication ratio. And we tend to use the agents that we feel are more effective and less toxic early and then we leave the less effective and more toxic for, for later. And we have um, medications like immunomodulators, like thalidomide and lenalidomide, which in, in myeloma have done a fantastic job. But in Waldenstrom's, it seems to be that it's still trying to find uh, you know, a place for the treatment. Uh, we do have uh, second and third generation antibodies like uh, ofatumumab and obinutuzumab. That is also unclear in which setting they could be used. In, in, our, in our clinic, in, in patients who have intolerance to rituximab, meaning the infusions to rituximab get to be so problematic that the doctors do not feel comfortable in continuing with rituximab infusions, in those patients, we have a, a good, a substantial amount of experience uh, using ofatumumab as a replacement. So that's something I would consider in those, in those patients specifically. Uh, the data with a new, uh, with more recent antibody called obinutuzumab is much more limited so it's hard for me to say anything about that. There are other options uh, like Everolimus, for example, that we have used in some scenarios too. And, um, but again, the toxicity becomes more of a problem with these agents than not. In, in any case, uh, the treatment of relapse refractory patients need to be personalized. I think um, the doctor needs to have into account a number of different factors, including the treatment that was previously re given and, and, you know, and, and have other issues uh, in mind when selecting these treatments. And it really takes a detailed conversation about uh, the benefits and potential problems that anybody could have with this. And I think uh, the, 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 we can use this genomic profiling of patients to try to tailor treatments in a better, uh, in a better way or at least in a different way uh, moving forward and see if that actually pays off for patients. Uh, Dr. Ansel mentioned... Um, a mutation in a gene uh, called MYD88, which more than 90% of patients with Waldenstrom's have. But also there is a, a second mutation or a family of mutations in a gene uh, called CXCR4 um, that in our experience, about a third of patients with Waldenstrom's tend to have. So this is of interest because um, specifically um, the example of ibrutinib, it seems that patients who do not carry the MYD88 mutation might not respond as well uh, to ibrutinib as um, patients uh, with the MYD88 mutation. Similarly, uh, patients who have CXCR4 mutations might have um, a more superficial and shorter um, response duration um, to ibrutinib compared to patients without the CXCR4 mutation. 
So it looks like when we're talking about specifically about ibrutinib, uh, having knowing the genomic profiling of patients could help inform the decisions in terms of what to treat, what to use next. Now, um, we don't have any data uh, as of today that patients who get treated with chemoimmunotherapy or even with proteasome inhibitors, uh, the effect of these are affected by the genomic profiling. So I, I think the genomic profiling is uh, of more importance for BTK inhibitors, uh, much more than for other uh, treatment options. Now, uh, I think the clinical trials that we are um, kind of envisioning in the future might um, be driven in part by this genomic profiling. For example, we do have a clinical trial running at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at this time in which we are combining an antibody against CXCR4 uh, in combination with ibrutinib. And that is a, a clinical trial that is running. Um, we are excited, obviously, about the study. Uh, we do have uh, some laboratory data that is very exciting. And I, I hope this is going to translate into uh, better treatments to patients. But again, that is uh, data that is going to come back probably later this year uh, to, to better inform our decisions. And in, in, in that regard, I think um, this is the future in, in, in the sense that uh, the clinical trials moving forward might have these components into the selection of patients so we can enrich the population that we can use these treatments on in, in, in whom we believe these treatments might be um, you know, better suited. But again, those are um, information that we are investigating and is at this time um, in terms of research. Um, so the symptoms and side effects that we tend to see in patients really differ uh, greatly from treatment to treatment. Some treatments are uh, more problematic in terms of providing patients or giving patients low blood counts, and sometimes transfusions are necessary, or what we call growth factors uh, for red cells, platelets, or white blood cells are needed. Uh, some medications can give patients neuropathy, uh, and then you know we need to be very careful about you know kind of decreasing the dose or spacing the the, the cycles of these uh, drugs to kind of minimize uh, those problems. Uh, other common issues that we see is nausea and constipation, for example. And again, you know, knowing in, in advance that these symptoms could be problematic, um, then it helps us really uh, take measures to actually stay ahead of the game in, in those specific situations. So I, I think uh, in general terms, the managing symptoms and side effects not only require that the patient uh, knows what symptoms or side effects are those, but also the clinician knows that the patient is actually experiencing those symptoms and those side effects. So they can work very closely uh, to actually you know, manage this appropriately to, to not to alter the patient's quality of life in a, in a significant manner. So I think a close communication uh, between patients and their treatment uh, and the treatment, treating physicians and practitioners is key to actually manage the symptoms and side effects appropriately, but also the patient being educated appropriately, um, either on their own or by their, by their clinicians, on these potential side effects um, could, would, be, would be effective. Now, at the end of the day, uh, what we are trying to do in patients with Waldenstrom's is to improve their quality of life. The reason we begin treatments on patients is because the patient's quality of life are affected or are threatened. Uh, either by hyperviscosity or neuropathy or anemia or uh, recurrent infections or, or several other issues, um, you know, uh, accumulation of fluid in the lungs and so many other ways in which the disease can manifest, such as meningitis and things of that nature. So every treatment that we have 
it is aimed to improving the patient's quality of life. And, and that would be the, the final um, outcome that we would like to see, or the, one of the most important outcomes that we would like to see when we treat patients. In the last few minutes, I'm going to talk about peripheral neuropathy. Neuropathy, uh, and I'm going to focus specifically on the neuropathy driven by the disease. Uh, there are some medications, as I mentioned, that can give neuropathy, but that would be a separate issue. So I, I would say that about one in four uh, patients who come to our clinic uh, do have some type of neuropathy. And I think the initial um, evaluation should have into account that we need to prove that the neuropathy is related to the disease. Um, we have seen a number of um, situations in which the patients come to see us with a diagnosis of neuropathy and Waldenstrom's and, and their clinicians assume that there's a connection. And when we go deeper, we find that the patient has diabetes or that the patient has uh, vitamin B12 deficiency or the patient has uh, Lyme disease. And, and those are also uh, very common, actually more common reasons to cause neuropathy in the general population that Waldenstrom's is. So we always have to, in the first place, understand what the connection is between the neuropathy and uh, the IgM per se. Now, we can see neuropathy in patients with Waldenstrom's, but we can also see neuropathy in patients with IgM MGAS. In, in whom really there's not a clear diagnosis of Waldenstrom's, and the management of those two conditions is just a little bit different as well because we do have obviously more options in terms of how to treat a patient with actual Waldenstrom's because there's a malignancy diagnosis underlying, while the patients with this benign IgM MGAS, even though the severity of the neuropathy could be similar to the patients with Waldenstrom's, then the treatment options are a little bit more limited. So for patients with neuropathy, I would highly recommend seeing a specialist in Waldenstrom's and also a neurologist who specializes in neuropathy. So the testing is done in a systematic manner and, and in a thorough manner as well. And then the treatment options should mimic the, the options that we use for patients with Waldenstrom's, having into account that we should avoid medications that can further worsen the patient's neuropathy. So finally, I think I touched already a little bit on the mapping of the future of Waldenstrom's and including uh, long-term survivors. We are collecting data uh, as we go every year at the national level, and we have been encouraged by seeing that the survival of patients with Waldenstrom's keeps um, getting longer as time has gone by, and uh, there's another analysis that will come up probably in the next couple of years, uh, looking at the last decade, and we, I'm, I'm very encouraged to see that patients tend to enjoy um, you know, several years of life with a good quality, so it's not only the quantity that matters in this situation as well. So I think the future of Waldenstrom's is very bright. I think um, what is coming out in clinical trials, what is coming out of our laboratories and our clinics uh, is going to help to actually move the field forward and make patients feel better and live longer and be uh, and enjoy their life as, as, as much as they could. So thank you very much for your time, and I, that finished uh, my presentation. I will go back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Casillo. That was so comprehensive and a lot of information. And there will be questions for you, I know. They're coming in now um, during the Q&A, so thank you. Um, our next speaker is Mr. Carl Harrington. Mr. Harrington is president, IWMF, the International Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia Foundation. And um, he is going to be addressing IWF's free programs and conferences. And I'm now in, I have to say that he has been instrumental in planning today's program and selecting the speakers and really just being such a wonderful organization for us to work with. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Mr. Harrington. 
thank you, Carolyn, for those kind words. On behalf of all WMers, thank you, Dr. Castillo, and thank you, Dr. Ansel, for providing such clear information in a way that we can all understand. Now, I say we because, like most of you who are listening, I'm also a WM patient and a volunteer. And wow, can you guys believe we have over 1,300 attendees from over 29 countries on this call? That's incredible for a rare disease like WM. Now, the IWMF is dedicated to a simple but compelling vision. Support everyone affected by WM while we search for a cure. As you just heard from Drs. Ansel and Castillo, these are exciting times for WM patients. We're closer than ever to a cure with better treatments for WM with fewer side effects and longer remissions. Now, you may be wondering, why do we have so many new drugs and how come there's so much interest in a rare disease like WM? Well, it's because of what we've done together. Since 1999, the IWMF has funded nearly $14 million in WM research in over 45 specific projects. Every single one of those dollars have come from WM patients, family, and friends. So if you haven't already, please donate to the IWMF and ask your friends and family to help you support the IWMF. Right now, today, as I'm speaking, we have over $4.3 million invested in 11 active research projects around the world. We'll add two or three more later this year if we have the funds. Now, what that means is no matter where you are in the world, when you get up in the morning, somebody with a huge IQ is working on your disease. When you have dinner, someone else is working on WM. When you go to bed, another brainiac is working on your disease. That's how we're making so much progress. Said another way, the sun never sets on WM research. And for those of us with WM, that is a very, very good thing. Now, the sun also never sets on IWF support. We have affiliates now in 21 countries outside of the United States that represent nearly half the world's population. That's where, that shows you with the number of people on this call today. We have over 65 support groups globally. Our materials are translated into seven languages, and they're all available for free on our website. And our website at www.iwf.com can be viewed in over 100 languages via Google Translate. So the sun never sets an IWF support either. Disease facts or someone to talk to are only a click on your computer away or a phone call away. So if you need us, we're here for you 24-7 with real human support from your fellow WMers. With the IWMF, you are never alone. And that is also a very, very good thing. So on behalf of WMers everywhere, thank you to Dr. Ansel, thank you to Dr. Castillo, and thank you to Carolyn and Cancer Care for your support and help today. Back to you, Carolyn. Wow, thank you. Thank you, Carl. That was amazingly inspirational. So just think about it. The sun never sets all the time, 24 hours a day. Research is going on. Help is going on. Please keep that. Remember all of that as a tagline, and you're never alone. Um, thank you. And our next speaker um, is um, Ms. Caroline Edlin. Ms. Edlin is an oncology social worker. She's our online support group program director at Cancer Care. And Ms. Edlin is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Edlin. Thank you, Caroline. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. I would like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with Waldenstrom's and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. 
Cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and their family members and friends, and we are experienced in helping people manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online groups. In fact, we offer an online group specifically dedicated to the needs and experiences of WM patients. You can register on Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org. This group and our groups in general offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a cancer care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your loved ones. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help you. So please do consider contacting us at 1-800-813-4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Edlund, and, and thank you for highlighting um, the uh, WM online support group and all the services that we offer. Thank you. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions, so thank you to our speakers. And so I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Now, I know many of you already have queued up online, but Crystal's going to give everybody a fair um, a chance to ask a question. Now, if we don't get to your question at the end of the call, we will discuss how to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take right now. So you'll bring all of our speakers on board, and um, you'll um, actually explain to how to queue up for questions. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Dennis Kay. Your line is open. Yes, good morning. Um, I have a question for Dr. Castillo. I saw you about three years ago in Boston, and you were very, very helpful at that time with my WM. I have been uh, using uh, Imbruvica for the last three years, and very successfully it brought my IgM from 4,600 down to about 1,600. Uh, recently I've had some heart issues uh, like AFib and cardiomyopathy, uh, and I have stopped taking the uh, Imbruvica because my doctors felt that that, that might have been the cause of my problems. Is there something specifically that, that you could recommend uh, along the same type of, of help as the Imbruvica? Thank you. 
Well, thank you for the excellent question, Dennis. And Dr. Castillo, could you address this in a general way, of course? Yes. Yeah, so thank you for for the for the question. So I mean, unfortunately, I, I cannot provide specific recommendations in terms of um, you know what to do. What I can tell you in general terms is that AFib is a um, potentially side effect of ibrutinib. Um, in, in our database, about five to ten percent of patients um, on ibrutinib do develop uh, atrial fibrillation. The risk is higher uh, in patients who are older than 70, in patients who are men, in patients with prior history of heart problems. Um, in our, uh, you know, it, it, it varies diff- in, in many different ways how we treat those patients. We do have patients who choose to, you know, be removed from the study, from the treatment and then get into a different type of treatment. We do have patients who have decided to stay on ibrutinib despite the fact that they are on atrial fibrillation and they take the medications that are um, prescribed for atrial fibrillation. There are different ways of going here. I think um, if you have not pre- obviously been previously exposed to any other treatments, then the, main, the treatments that we were talking about with uh, Dr. Ansel in terms of chemoimmunotherapy is an option. And again, um, you know, protosome inhibitors, uh, it's another option in terms of treatment. Now, there are a number of BTK inhibitors coming down the, you know, coming down the road. Uh, one of them is a medication called acalabrutinib, and another one is, another, is called zanubrutinib. I think the risk of AFib with those two uh, new medications is also uh, real. Um, maybe lower, maybe not, uh, compared to ibrutinib, but they also are, have been associated with um, with atrial fibrillation. So I would basically look at the treatments that you have had before ibrutinib. Um, consider if you would like to continue on ibrutinib or not, despite the fact that you are on AFib, and um, and then based on that, make a decision in terms of what to do moving forward. I mean, that will take a you know very careful conversation in terms of pros and cons with your uh, primary physician. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question in front of all online participants um, for Dr. Ansel. Um, what to expect with this disease? as an 81-year-old male. So I think uh, the encouraging thing about this disease is you can probably expect the same as if you were a 61-year-old male. And that is that, uh, as we've been discussing, it's a disease in which uh, we have very successful therapies if you need therapy at all. And I think on top of that, uh, therapies can be very well tolerated and can induce very good remissions that can be very durable. So I always say to patients, it's much more about biological age than chronological age. And uh, we would modify, and I think Dr. Castillo made this point very clearly, and I think it's important, individualized therapy based on one's needs uh, for treatment and obviously biology of the patient so that we pick the right therapy. But I think all said, uh, treatment can be very successful regardless of what your age might be. Excellent. Thank you. And our next telephone question. And our next question comes from Pat B. Your line is open. Hello. I'd like to just kind of go back to basics. If a person has been diagnosed with MGUS, um, and I'm from Canada, so it would be Uh, an IgM of 3.78 grams per liter and an IgG of 5.79 grams per per liter. What's different for me is Bentz-Jones showed up in my urine. So um, I seem to be getting conflicting views on this. I was told I might get multiple myeloma 
or Waldenstrom's. I was wondering if you can enlighten me. Oh, thank you, Pat, for that question. Um, uh, Dr. Casillo, could you address that question? Yes. So, in a general uh, way, of course. Of course, of course. So, I mean, in general terms, um, you know, the type of MGAS uh, will tell us a lot in terms of what the disease, you know, that patients might develop in the future could be. Uh, patients with IgG or IgA MGAS are more likely, if they are, if they were going to progress into my, into a disease, a malignant disease, that that will more likely be myeloma. However, in patients with IgM MGAS. If they, those patients were to progress, they are more likely to progress into Waldenstrom's. Now, the risk of progression from MGAS to a malignancy is actually very low. It's in about 1% per year, uh, which means that from diagnosis, you know, for a patient to have a certainty that they will develop a malignant process, they will have to be alive for 100 years. Now, there are other risk factors that we have to see in terms of, you know, the size of the spike, and the free light chain ratios and other things like that that could tell me even more about if there's an intermediate risk or a lower risk or a higher risk of progressing into 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 an actual malignant disease. But by all means, an IgM MGAS or an IgG MGAS, it's a benign condition that is not supposed to affect the patient's uh, either quality of life or life expectancy. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and um, our next um, telephone question um, for Dr. Ansel. Can you rec can you comment on acquired angioedema and WM? Yeah, so that's a, a good question. And uh, the the challenges uh, are sometimes uh, that one we have a unusual diagnosis of angioedema, which is not a common diagnosis, and an unusual and not common disease, which is Waldenstrom's. So those two uh, being associated would be associated only a very small percentage of patients. So a lot of when we have uh, information, it's predominantly anecdotal where there's just a few cases. And actually, the associations uh, are a little bit difficult to always uh, coordinate together. However, <clears throat> IgE immunoglobulin uh, proteins can cause a, a number of different issues and have uh, effects uh, anywhere around the body. So those associations can certainly occur. But I think uh, it's important for folks to know that although there can be an association, uh, that's a very uncommon and unusual effect. I think, again, to give specific advice here would really require a lot of additional information specifically about each of those diagnoses and obviously how that's affecting the patient. Thank you very much, and I hope that's helpful. And our next telephone question, um, Crystal? And our next question comes from Patricia G. Your line is open. Would that be me? Yes. Oh, hi. Hi, your hi. question. Hi, hi welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I have a, a question for Dr. Ansel, if possible. And I'm wondering why there's not been any discussion of Beneticlax and... Um, when, yeah, there's been no discussion of venetoclax. I'm on venetoclax. And why is re research continued on BTK inhibitors, but nothing seemingly, at least we're not hearing anything, on BCL2? Is, is BTK more important to address than B BCL2? 
Actually, thank you, Patricia, for your questions. And I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Ansel to give this a general answer for you. And um, Dr. Ansel, if you could address this question in a general way. Sure. So I, I think this is a very good question. And I think the reason that maybe not a lot of discussion happened with venetoclax is that Dr. Castillo and I each had 13 minutes to discuss a very comprehensive uh, you know, field. But I think what you're raising is a very important, and I hope this would be additional benefit to those on the call. So um, venetoclax is a, a drug that basically works on the death process in cells. So cells do one of two things. They either accumulate, this is Waldenstrom cells, they'll accumulate because they grow at a steady pace and are stimulated to keep growing, or because they won't die. And so because they won't die, they slowly accumulate over time. So BTK inhibitors, I would say, really work on this persistent stimulation that keeps encouraging them to grow. But Venetoclax, which targets a protein called BCL2, works on the other side, and that is it triggers the dying cycle. So that then causes these cells that kind of stubbornly keep accumulating to actually start dying at a more rapid process or a more rapid rate, and that then causes them to uh, uh, patients to respond to treatment. So venetoclax is a pill-based uh, treatment that one takes that triggers the dying cycle and, again, is highly effective in treating patients uh, with Waldenstrom's. I think, uh, again, you heard us talk in general terms about standard treatments. This is a treatment that is rapidly likely to become a standard, but it's kind of been in patients who have relapsed through the standard treatments and then are used, have been used in clinical trials later on. I think the exciting thing is now it's actually being used in combination with BTK inhibitors. So BTK inhibitors and venetoclax are used together, have been shown to be highly effective and uh, uh, well tolerated. So I think it's a very appropriate treatment. It's very successful in patients with Waldenstrom's. And I think as we look to the future, we're going to see this being used more and more in combination with other more standard therapies as an effective treatment to get very durable remissions. In general, as I say, I think uh, the reason you didn't hear so much about it in the call so far is just because most of it has been, most of the times it's been used has been in later lines of therapy when patients have progressed on other more standard treatments. But as I mentioned, this is likely to be a future standard, either on its own or in combination. Excellent. Thank you. And um, we have an online question for Dr. Castillo. Um, how common is it to have very high IgM, over 7,000, without any symptoms? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So um, if I you know think about the the distribution of IgM levels uh, on my patients, um, I, I think uh, having IgM levels over 7,000 will be probably about five percent of our population. Now, from all those patients, um, um, which you know will probably come up at about a hundred and some patients that we have seen in the last five, seven, six years, um, I would say probably. Three quarters of those patients do have some type of symptom, but about a quarter of, of patients with IgMs over 7,000 um, do not have any symptom or indication that there is any hyperviscosity. Having said all that, um, we do believe, um, based on research from our center, that you know once patients get to get to those levels, it's just a matter of time and sometimes just a few months for patients to become symptomatic. So in our clinic, uh, we tend to recommend treatment in patients with very high IgMs, um, 
uh, also they might not be precisely symptomatic. And, and again, you know, some people might agree with that and some people might not agree with that approach, but that's what we we tend to do here. Thank you. Um, and our next question from the telephone, Christian. Thank you. Our next question comes from Rich Yu. Your line is open. Uh, hi. I'm, I'm calling on behalf of my wife, uh, Barbara. Um, she's been on Imbrunitive for about one and a half years. Um, and uh, over the course of the last six months, uh, she's come down with uveitis uh, about approximately four times and had to be treated, uh, you know, with injections in her eye. Um, and, and then it would clear up and, you know, six, eight weeks would go by and, and it would recur again. Uh, is, is this the result um, of uh, WM? And, and is there any other um, um, diagnosis for it or, or from the imbrutinative? Well, thank you for that question. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Ansel, could you address that question? Um, I think that's a, a great question. I think uh, I, I would have to say that we would have to check whether or not uh, there have been, because of the small number of patients, relatively speaking, who've received a brutinib as to what percentage of those patients developed a uveitis related to that. So for those on the call who don't know what uveitis is, it's really an inflammation in your eye. So there are a number of different ways in which that can happen. So we know that basically BTK inhibitors affect T cell function as well. So even though they work against mainly B cells, they can affect a very closely related protein called ITK, and that's actually mainly in T cells. So T cells can become revved up, and when that happens, they can certainly cause problems at sites at other places. So certainly it's a possibility that it's associated, but it's a pretty unusual uh, thing that could happen. The other thing that also is important is to know whether or not there's any association with infections. So sometimes it, what's called a uveitis could also be due to an infection. And sometimes when you're on treatment, your immune system doesn't function entirely normally, so you can get some in, uh, infectious kind of situations which can cause an inflammation in your eye. Usually the, the ophthalmologist would pick up on that, but again, that's what makes it a little difficult on a call like this to know whether this is truly inflammatory or whether there's some degree of infection. I think when all is said and done, the advice I would give is to work with your doctor to see if there are any other symptoms and findings that would give some clarification as to other causes. If not, one of the tests could be to switch to a different treatment and see whether the uveitis problem goes away. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question from one of our online participants for Dr. Castillo. Which WM patients are best candidates for stem cell transplant? Yeah, the, the, the role of a stem cell transplantation in Waldenstrom's is, is um, I would say, have not been defined uh, appropriately. And again, some doctors uh, feel that they need to be used uh, earlier in the in, in the treatment of patients, and some doctors would prefer to use them later in the in the line, in, you know, in, in the time of uh, the treatment of patients in the course of their disease. So we recently have put together a consensus uh, document uh, in which I think there were I think Steve, you were part of that anyway. Uh, there were about a dozen of different um, um, physicians between doctors who transplant, you know, transplanters, as well as clinicians. And I think the, the current recommendation is um, the patient would have uh, to be a candidate for an uh, autologous transplant, 
I'm happy to kind of, uh, you know, go elaborate a little bit more. Autologous transplant is a condition in which the stem cells used for the transplant are from the same patient, from the patient himself or herself, and the patient then gets a lot of chemotherapy that basically ablates the marrow, and that the marrow that has been collected previously gets given back to them, which is different than an allo transplant in which you get the stem cells from somebody else, from a, from a donor. So for autologous transplant, which is the former, um, the recommendation is uh, to consider it in patients who have failed chemoimmunotherapy, have failed proteasome inhibitors, and have also failed BTK inhibitors. So that will basically put transplants somewhere in the, in the fourth line of treatment. Um, allotransplants um, should not be considered unless uh, in the setting of a, uh, of a clinical trial at this time. Okay, thank you. Um, and um, uh, we have a, um, a question from our participants for Dr. Ansel. Can the genetic markers MYD88 and CXCR4 change over the life of the disease? Does this mean a bone marrow for genetic markers needs to be done more than at diagnosis? If you could address that question. Um, yeah, so that's a, a very good question. And um, in general, and I think we're gaining more information over time, um, if you take MYD88 as the, uh, as the first thing to talk about, in general, 90 plus 95% of patients have this mutation. And so because of that, uh, that's not common that you would suddenly uh, have a clone where either that changed or went away. I think if it did change, one of the big concerns is that a totally different uh, number of, of malignant cells is growing out, and many times those could be what we call a large cell lymphoma transformation. Uh, but I would say that in general, the MYD88 mutational status uh, doesn't change. I think the other thing is the uh, the CXCR4 mutation, and then there are other mutations that are seen in a subset of cells or in a subset of patients. Um, those things can sometimes change, mainly because a clone of cells, so a group of the cells that have the mutation, are becoming more prevalent. And I think Dr. Castillo said it well. I mean, the key question is, uh, how does this impact management? And it certainly can impact treatments such as BTK inhibitors, such as abrutinib. So I think if you're planning to get treated for with uh, abrutinib, it's always worthy to test this uh, around the time that that's initiated. I think outside of that, I don't think there's much merit in repeating it again, because I don't think we know whether the information really makes a, a change. I will say one thing, though, is that if at any time the biology of your disease appears to change, in other words, things speed up and suddenly there's a new lump or something that's dramatically different to before, or suddenly blood counts really change compared to before, very important to obtain another biopsy, not just for genetic purposes, but to obtain information about the biology of the lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. We want to make sure it's still the same as it was before and it hasn't changed pace and become a more aggressive lymphoma. And the reason that matters is we will change treatment uh, if there's actually been a transformation to a more aggressive lymphoma. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I actually um, I want to thank our speakers. You've been outstanding. This has been an amazing program today, uh, just in incredible. And we do have many, many more questions, um, both online and on the telephone, so I want to just acknowledge that. 
Um, but I do just want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And our participants as well, because they've asked such great questions. And there are more great questions that we have yet to ask just because of time. So I, um, I want to thank everyone. I also had said that at the end of the program today, I would give you resources in terms of where to get your questions answered. So we always recommend, of course, and even for those who have asked a question today, that you still take that information back to your treating healthcare team. And if you didn't get to ask a question, ask your healthcare team. And of course, we are partnering today with the International, Myelo International Waldenstrom's IWMF, and actually they are a terrific resource for all of you on the call today. Um, and um, you will be given, you've probably gotten already, you know their uh, website, www.iwmf.com, and their telephone number, 1941-927-4963. It's a wonderful resource in terms of they just have a lot of information that they can, of course, um, send off to you. We also often recommend the National Cancer Institute as a resource as well, um, just because they often have information as well. But I must say, IWMS is certainly because they specialize only in in Waldenstrom's and WM, it is just such a great resource for all of you. And to get there, they have an um, a, a online um, newsletter that goes out to all of you. They have information that you'll get. They have e-blasts that go out to you. So you definitely want to kind of link up with them if you're not linked up already. I know many of you are already. Um, so, um, and also if any of you wish to pursue joining our online support group at Cancer Care, um, you can contact um, our staff here at Cancer Care and, and join that group as well, or, or look into looking, looking into that group as well, visiting our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, but most importantly, as we conclude our program today, um, we, do want, we do not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. I think that um, Carl Harrington said it best, um, that um, we're all here for you, you're not alone. Um, and I think IWMS said specifically that there are researchers out there working day and night round the clock in different aspects of the globe um, to really um, develop new treatments for um, WM and to come up with new treatments for all of you. And also IWMF works very hard to provide you with resources and information. So please do take advantage of all of their upcoming programs, and we expect to do more programs with them so that you'll be hearing more from us as well. And um, I really want to thank you all for participating today. We are offering a program titled Managing Eye and Vision Changes Related to Cancer Treatments. It's actually coming up on Monday, April 15th, so very soon. And um, you can um, sign up for that on our website, um, and um, we hope you'll find that interesting. Again. Please take good care, and thank you for being on this program today. You are well connected now. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.